The statements and views expressed on the Voices and Vulnerability podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of Emory University School of Law or its affiliates. Welcome to Voices and Vulnerability, where we interview scholars shaping vulnerability theory in the legal world and beyond. We're here to learn about the transformational potential of vulnerability theory and how it is already shaping public policy and discourse around the world. I am your host, Mangala Kinesen. Today, I'm grateful to have Professor Richard Daynard here on the show as my guest. Professor Daynard is University Distinguished Professor of Law at Northeastern School of Law. His academic interests currently center on the intersections among law, public policy, and the behavioral sciences, and he teaches courses in the field both to law students and to undergraduate honor students. Thank you so much for being here today. It's my pleasure. Can you tell me a little bit about how you first heard about the concept of vulnerability theory and your contact with Professor Martha Feynman? Well, I actually just met Professor Feynman last week and had not heard about vulnerability theory before that. But uh, uh, when Martha introduced myself and explained that I was teaching this course uh, on uh, human behavior uh, legal doctrine and policy design. And she said, oh, uh, do send me a syllabus. And when I did, she said, gee, you know, looks like we're on the same page that uh, we're doing many of the same things. So, you know, as I put it to her, it's, it's like uh, there was some character who in a play, famous uh, play, I forget which, by whom, who suddenly discovers he's talking prose. So uh, apparently I've been talking vulnerability theory for a while and just not realizing it. Okay, so it turns out that you'd been speaking uh, prose your entire life. Have you had any conversations with Martha Feynman about vulnerability theory yet? Like, have you talked about... Very few, very few. We're we're just beginning our acquaintanceship. But I think, uh, uh, since I do think we're both thinking about... uh, similar issues. And the more I have to learn about vulnerability theory, the more uh, I'll be able to say something sensible about our the overlap of the issues or the complementarity. But uh, yeah, I certainly look forward to it. And I think she does too, to further conversations and collaborations. Can you tell me about your project in undermining the concept of the reasonable man in law? That's something that you're working on in your research or in your classes, right? Right, right. Well, that's, um, I, I sometimes, as I said, the title of the course, and it actually is a slightly different title when I teach it to law students and undergrads, but it's the law students, it's human behavior, legal doctrine and policy design. Undergrad is public law, public policy and human behavior. But uh, my, the subtitle, the informal subtitle of the course is that if you believe that the rational person standard is not perfect necessarily, but actually a pretty good basis for designing uh, uh, public policy and legal doctrine, pretty good guide, then you desperately have to take this course. So that's the, uh, um, that's, that's the theme, that it's, uh, um, uh, it has become, at least in the last 40 years, in terms of public policy, sort of the um, uh, default framework. I mean, of course, what you'd really want to do, if if at all possible, and we can be very imaginative, but figuring out ways to make this possible is you turn everything into a market. 
<coughs> right? So the, the because we do know because it was proven by Adam Smith, I guess that uh, um, uh, and then the, the you know the neoclassical economists uh, following him a, a century or more or two later that. Uh, 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 that actually people are happiest, you maximize human happiness by maximizing human choice, and that therefore, and and nobody could possibly, I begin with, you know, I signed two things to the students. I signed a little excerpt from Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, where he talks about the fact that we don't look to the uh, butcher, the baker, or the brewer. We don't look to, you know, their... Um, uh, uh, altruism for getting our bread or uh, uh, beer, but we look to their self-interest, and it's you know the marketplace. And uh, uh, he doesn't make a big thing about the invisible hand, but that's what comes out of it—the idea that you know this uh, automatically, uh, at least if you get rid of uh, anti-competitive conspiracies and things, that will automatically. Uh, produce the uh, greatest uh, you know variety of things that are really desired, which there's a consumer desire at the highest possible quality at the lowest possible price. And then you combine that. The other uh, assignment I give them is a little snippet from John Stuart Mill's On Liberty, where uh, Mill argues that the even the most ordinary person has an infinitely better understanding of what they want, what makes them happy, what they're looking for in life, than uh, any outsider possibly could have. Um, and it's, uh, you know, I think it's, uh, you know, it, it's, you know, I mean, both uh, uh, Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill were actually, I think, you know, they would be shocked and horrified to see what uh, some of the things that have you know, happened with them. And John Stuart Mill uh, is not a libertarian with a capital L. Uh, he would have been first in line to get his vaccine. And uh, the, uh, uh, but, you know, he did believe as a, you know, as a good mid 19th century philosopher, um, uh, he thought, well, how do you understand people's minds? We each of us have a unique access to our own mind. We know our own mind. Nobody else could possibly know our mind because you had to be inside it. You had to be inside the body uh, and having this is your mind to know it. So I think you. So you put those two things together, and you get a policy prescription or a meta policy prescription. How a notion of how policy should be done put together of any kind, including legal doctrines, to the extent courts are fashioning legal doctrine. And how should it be put together? It should be put together in a way that maximizes possible choice so that everybody applying their own unique selves, um, uh, desires, wishes, needs, wants, uh, fears, etc., to things on the marketplace, to power, uh, as applied to policy generally, to policy options to things that, you know, do you want this kind of health care plan or that kind of health care plan? Um, you know, this or that kind of whatever. Um, 
you know, things will all be for the best and best of all possible worlds if you maximize, uh, if you turn everything to a market or a quasi-market, you know, something that emulates a market. So that's, uh, I think policymakers got drunk on this, uh, you know, elixir on this prescription um, for 40 years. But of course, one element of that is neoliberalism or neoconservatism or neoclassicism, whatever you, classical economics, whatever you want to call it. The other piece that makes it particularly resonant in the uh, U.S. is we are all deep believers in rugged individualism, right? So that, um, I mean, of course, the way you are successful in life is by knowing your own mind, putting your nose to the grindstone, getting um, coming out and everybody rises to uh, his or her appropriate level through uh, um, uh, uh, by doing their thing. Uh, and um, uh, nothing could possibly be better, no form of social organization that instructed people what to do or that limited their entrepreneurial creativity could possibly be an improvement over letting people do their own thing. So we have um, a uh, you know political culture, social and political culture, you know, that might have made sense uh, before the frontier closed uh, about 130 years ago. Um, but that continues uh, rags to riches, uh, break it striking out on your own. Um, you know, maybe you don't notice that it was the government that gave you your 40 acres and uh, an oxen or whatever, ox or whatever, to uh, to plow it. But uh, in any event, once once you're there uh, and you get started, it's all you doing it. So that, you know, that stream resonates with the, <clears throat> uh, you know, more uh, formal um, ideas. You know, it was the Austrian. Uh, school, economic school, and Milton Friedman, the University of Chicago, uh, Richard Posner, first a professor, then a uh, law professor, then a judge, who uh, popularized it, at least in the legal academy, through his book on the economic analysis of law, where he analyzed absolutely every part of law. Anything in law, you know, could be, as far as he was concerned, uh, and he is a very smart guy, clever guy and imaginative. So he was able to explain that every possible field of law could better be understood uh, better than whatever else uh, is presently being talked about in terms of economics and uh, uh, supply and demand and things like that. So um, how did I just uh, briefly biographically, how I got into this is uh, a program I was teaching in, a graduate program, was phasing out about 10 years ago. So I was talking to my associate dean about what other course I would teach. And uh, what I've been doing, you know, other than teaching, um, is uh, um, encouraging people to sue tobacco companies. So that's been my sort of my big thing since 1984 or thereabouts. And in tobacco litigation, the big resistance we get is the notion that the smokers made their choice. 
that these were people who chose to smoke. They decided to smoke. They didn't have to smoke. Nobody made them smoke. Nobody put a gun to their head, but they decided to smoke. And then they continued to smoke, even though they've heard about the Surgeon General's reports and so forth and so on. And, you know, therefore they have nobody to blame but themselves. So, you know, obviously this is a, uh, a story that the tobacco industry loves to tell when we sue them. And, you know, often enough, uh, at least half the time, um, the jury buys the story. I mean, because this resonates. Yes, of course, we're all making choices all the time. And I mean, the story we, we try to tell is a story about how a couple of things, one about addiction and the power of addiction and that people really do not have a free choice um, after, uh, you know, they become hooked on this, which happens fairly early. Um, uh, as well as a story about the deliberate efforts of the tobacco industry to get the kids to smoke because you're not going to persuade an adult who's not a non-smoker to start smoking, at least not once the evidence has come out about the dangers. But, you know, kids, you got a good shot at, or at least you certainly used to. And um, and all the misrepresentations and all the um, uh, marketing that worked by association, not by uh, making uh, 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 propositions of the sort you would put on the board in a class on logic, but uh, by making images of you know, really cool, sexy, um, uh, happy you know, people uh, smoking whatever brand of cigarettes it is. And that would be the stuff that would be with a nice little jingle that would stick in your head. Um, you know, whatever you thought about smoking, you know, I can still do Winston, taste good, like a cigarette should, and so forth. And I probably haven't heard that in 50 years. But, um, you know, it's one of these things that uh, really, um, you know, is in there. And, um, you know, that that's sort of the way that stuff is effective at getting you to smoke, that you don't go through, certainly kids don't, but even adults don't for the most part go through life doing, you know, careful analyses of every proposition before they buy a candy bar or whatever. So that, so that was my way into this. I said, okay, I want to study. Why do people believe this? Why does everybody believe this? So what's going on here? Uh, and then I came upon um, Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, and read that. And that's the next thing I saw in students. And, you know, he talks about system one and two and the system two being what uh, John Stuart Mill was basically accessing through introspection. Oh, yeah, thinking, you know, we're, we're doing the thinking. That's system two, but most of our mind is made up of system one, which is not consciously, the products of it may or may not be conscious. We may do things unconsciously without any conscious uh, moment there. Um, I mean, if you're driving a car, when I'm driving a car and I'm slowing down because the car ahead of me is slowing down, I slow down and I'm not thinking to myself, I am slowing down. He's putting on his brakes, so I am putting on my brakes. I put on my brakes and I slow down. And if, you know, there's nothing 
unusual if uh, there's just a little bit of a uh, nod in the traffic and it uh, opens up again. You know, I, I never you know, have any cause to do any uh, thinking about it. I just do it. So that's all, you know, the system one or system one is, I mean, that's the model. Uh, and in fact, the great majority of things you do in life, the great majority of what ha- what's going on with your mind is going on not at a conscious level. And it's a, you know, it's a good thing. It's taking good care of you. It's looking out for threats, like the cars ahead of me uh, slowing down on the uh, mass turnpike. And it's you know checking, is there something odd going on here that I need to pay attention to? Or can I just relax? You know, that everything is uh, copacetic. Everything is going uh, just fine. So the, uh, you know, once I... Uh, uh, I now knew how the course was going to get going. And, uh, you know, then I picked a whole bunch of topics. I started with smoking, and then I was also interested in obesity. So obesity was the next. Then I got interested in gambling addictions and uh, gambling, and that was the next one. And then uh, I picked up from there as a law professor with uh, various players in the legal system. You know, our prosecutors, rational, what happens when a you know, prosecutor has convicted somebody and there's a DNA test and the DNA test shows they didn't do it. You know, the, the rational prosecutor says, oops, I'm really sorry. I did the best I can, but of course I'll support your release. But a large proportion of prosecutors don't react that way because they're, you know, they just send somebody to jail. Yeah, it would be a terrible thing if they did it and the person wasn't guilty. So person must be guilty anyhow for some reason that dna test just isn't giving the right result so there must be some other explanation uh going on here um and you know and so forth you know we have uh um uh, you know policemen who i mean there are some policemen who uh, obviously do very bad things that um hopefully the rest of us wouldn't do but it turns out on a lot of things um you know, with, um, uh, you know, there are just psychological tests. People tend to see, well, test them. Policemen, they tend to see black uh, uh, adolescents as about four years older than they actually are. Whereas white adolescents is a year or two younger than they actually are. So you see them as more of a threat. Do they want to see them as more of a threat? No. Do they think they're... Uh, but, you know, they think they can rely on their eyes. We're taught, you know, you know, your your perception is accurate normally. Obviously, we all have run into uh, uh, optical illusions here and there. But the general assumption is that people have is that your perception is accurate. Well, the fact is your perception depends very much on what you expect to perceive. It's very much mediated by that. It's not a simple taking in of sense data and processing that in some kind of neutral analytic way to produce, you know, images and conclusions. The mind is much, much more complicated than that. And most of the complications you have no access to. But psychologists do, you know, who are doing, you know, uh, careful studies post uh, uh, John Stuart Mill, you know, 20th and 21st studies, century studies of psychology say, well, no, actually, People, other people can know your mind, much about your mind in a way that you simply don't. 
you don't have access to if you haven't done the studies or you're you're not a student of psychology. You may never you may never know this. So the human beings are much more complicated than uh, uh, the view we have, and the more complicated human beings need to be um, protected or regulated. Um, you know, if it's a matter of police behavior, let's say perfectly good faith, but still mistaken, or if it's consumer behavior, if it's individual behavior, all kinds of things. You know, we need regulations because even if our heart is in the right place, we would like to do the right thing. We're simply not capable of doing that. We, The conscious mind, the reasoning mind, what uh, Kahneman and that school of thought calls system two thinking, um, it's very hard. Apparently, when, when you're doing it, a lot of system, heavy system two thinking, you actually consume more sugar. You know, speaking of sweets, you consume more sugar because it's you're burning a lot of energy. It's hard work. And there's a limit to how much of it you can do. It's tiring. And there's a limit to how much you can do uh, in the course of a day or at a given particular point. And, you know, anything that assumes that we can simply make these decisions and we're, and that we are some um, uh, network computer, you know, that huge you know, network uh, computer, the latest, um, a variety that can perform, you know, uh, a thousand calculations a second or whatever. No, we're nothing like that. And the other piece that comes from that uh, and another piece that comes through in all this is that this guy Darwin is still very important in understanding all this stuff, that the fact that we, we are, among other things, animals and very in terms of how we got to be as we are, we evolved from non-human, you know, animals, and we have many of the same systems. Uh, we have a huge overlap of genes with all kinds of animals, you know, very distant. But but essentially, you know, we have to be understood. The human beings, human mind, and human nature has to be understood in the context of evolution, and. Uh, in that context, you know, the kinds of stuff about uh, that just assumes that what we are is this rational calculator, you know, it, it just, just seems silly. Yeah, there's a science fiction series called like The Chronicles of Dune. Have you heard of it? It's by Frank Herbert. I think I've heard of it. I haven't, I haven't yeah. seen it. In it, there is this group of people called Mentats. And they're actually trained like from childhood to be like super, like they're basically human computers and they're supposed to analyze things and they're trained to analyze things without involving any human emotion at all, without having any emotion. But as a consequence, they're really different. They're like visibly different from other humans in the way that they interact with each other and everything because there's no emotion at all. They're just like literally human computers. But in this sci-fi series, like these, these people to be able to do that, to make rational decisions all day, every day, like they literally have to go through decades and, and an entire lifetime of intensive training to be able to do that. And even then it's still science fiction. You know? Right. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Um, and, and of course with no, uh, no emotion, there's also no reason to do anything because emotions are, you know, a key part of our motivational system. We, 
you know, you do something because you're hungry, you do something because, you know, something in you really wants to help somebody, you know, even the, you know, the, the highest, the most, you know, other regarding and uh, socially supportive emotions, you know, are still emotions. I mean, there's a sense, I mean, my, I mean, I had this moment of awakening. It's, it's interesting that, because um, I had been troubled, you know, maybe several decades ago about the question of what reason is there to do something good, to be, you know, do something that doesn't benefit you. I, I wanted to do good. I, I mean, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't the selfish so-and-so, you know, uh, but I, I couldn't understand why did I want to do it, you know, if there's not going to be any kind of reward. And this went into issues of, of religion and so forth, as it, you know, does one, if one doesn't believe, at least in any traditional version of God, or, you know, what reason is there to do things? And I was, I was on an airplane, it was a, a business trip of some kind, I was on an airplane, I was sitting in an aisle seat, and um, the, there was somebody on there with his maybe three or four year old kid, and he was sitting up ahead of me, and they get up, and the kid is running up the aisle past me. I break into a big smile. Sort of my whole body smiles. You know, I don't know this kid from any, you know, from anywhere. And I had my answer to my question, which is, this is hardwired. This is hardwired. I, I didn't need to be socialized to smile when a little kid comes by. It's hardwired. Why is it hardwired? Because helping our children and our grandchildren and our neighbors' children and grandchildren, you know, was very useful, you know, in our evolutionary past, uh, that people had these emotions. But it's these, you know, but it's the emotion. It's it's that it's that hardwired desire. It's not that you have to reason your way into wanting to be help other people or be socially constructive. That's as hardwired as, you know, wanting to eat when you're hungry. And uh, uh, so, I mean, that was really a a revelation to me and, and a great relief. <laughs> Say, okay, you know, I, I, that's a that's a big puzzle I no longer have to solve. Thank you for sharing that. That sounds like such a powerful and transformative experience. Why are some of the student responses to your courses? And do you have any international students you teach as well? Well, this time around, now that I'm teaching it to law students, I also have mm -hmm. graduate students uh, in the class. And uh, this is really the first time. And, you know, I think the conversation in the class, it's a seminar. I have 19 students, I think, but, you know, they're all wearing masks, so it makes it a little little constrained to have the kind of free-flowing conversation that you have when you can, you know, when everybody sees each other and sees the responses. And again, emotional responses. These are non-conscious responses for the most part. You know, when somebody says something, um, you know, you know, these students, they're students after all, so they're thinking about something. Uh, do I have a particular thing? But they also have, you know, non-conscious response of, you know, something that's, uh, you know, either making a grimace or, you know, or a chuckle or or whatever. So that makes it a little harder. But, I mean, I've never gotten pushback from my students on this, on the underlying arguments that I was outlining, the underlying points. Now, they're self-selected. 
So in other words, if this were 15 or 20 random, you know, students, you know, would I get more pushback? Possibly. Northeastern University School of Law is a very sort of social uh, change, social action oriented sort of place. So, you know, they might uh, uh, be, uh, uh, you know, the law and economics movement never, you know, uh, imperialized, you know, never conquered our faculty. So, as they had many other faculties. So, uh, so I, I don't think I would get a lot of pushback. Because I, I think basically when people read the Kahneman book, they really, I don't know if you've read it, but there's, there's really a, it's, it's a wonderful book written in a, really a conversational style. This is not, this does not read like a textbook. You know, you don't need any course preparation or scientific preparation, you know, to read the thing. So you read this and you go, aha, and then you go, aha, and then you go, oh, really? And then you go, hmm. And by the time, you know, I have not read about 100 pages, you know, at the beginning of the book, and by the time they're done, you know, I, they're, they're sold. It's not a hard sell. Does this view of human nature or like understanding what assumptions we hold, does that change to you? Does that change the purpose of government or does that change what state of responsibility might exist? Well, it certainly reinvigorates an older conception of government, sort of the progressive era uh, conception throughout you know, the beginning, early periods of the 20th century, then the New Deal under FDR, and then the Great Society under LBJ. Um, you know, a sense that, you know, of, of course, government is, uh, uh, is the solution. It's interesting, going back to my tobacco experience, I'm just, I went through something I'm going to be discussing in class uh, uh, tomorrow, an article, and it was a study we did of the um, rhetoric around the time following the Surgeon General's report, the classic Surgeon General's report in 1964, about, okay, now that we know cigarette smoking causes lung cancer, or may well cause lung cancer, circa 1964, what should be done about it? And, you know, I had gotten a, you know, NIH grant to do this among, you know, this was a study within a larger area that I got this grant to work on. And so we did this study to try to figure out what were people thinking and saying. And from the viewpoint, we, we did this about 10 years ago, from the viewpoint of the, you know, late 20th, early 21st century, um, our assumption was they were going to be talking about individual responsibility. Not a word, almost not a word. So, you know, we're talking about the 1960s. Nobody was thinking that. The tobacco companies weren't saying it's our smokers' damn fault that they choose to smoke our deadly products. That's their current position. Um, but that, um, okay, what's the regulation? So the arguments were all about what kind of regulation should be done. Yeah, that's that's where the world, you know, our world was, uh, you know, before the uh, Ronald Reagan. I mean, Ronald Reagan came in um, uh, along with, you know, this, you know, neoconservative, neoliberal, classic, uh, neoclassic 
uh, economists, whatever you call it, a movement came along right with him. And Reagan comes in with his famous catchword, the you know phrase that you know the I don't know, seven or eight or nine scariest words in the English language. I'm from the government and I'm here to help. And you know, taking you know exactly all the progress you know that had been made in terms of social policy throughout the 20th century and turning it on its head, saying, no, 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 we could do much better if we just leave things to individuals to make their choices. And, you know, it wasn't just Republicans. So, uh, uh, I mean, as late as uh, Barack Obama, uh, Obama, who had uh, taught at the University of Chicago Law School and was you know, heavily infected with that kind of thinking. I mean, Obama, in, in fact, uh, you know, essentially allowed his subordinates uh, to veto uh, not only tobacco regulation, there had been one of the first things Obama did in office was to sign a amendment to the you know, federal tobacco control uh, law that basically allowed the Food and Drug Administration insisted, instructed it to uh, do various things, both to uh, issue warnings, but also to limit the you know, most dangerous product parts of uh, components or aspects of uh, tobacco products, including cigarettes, especially cigarettes. And nothing, they did nothing about it. And it was done, nothing was done about it because Cass Sunstein, who also had been at the University of Chicago Law School, uh, uh, and a very prolific writer and thinker uh, got appointed to run the Office of uh, Information and Regulatory Affairs at the Office of Management and Budget in the White House. And he, every government regulation had to go past K.S. Sunstein. And K.S. Sunstein basically kicked them all back unless they, the regulation just said, we want to give people choices. So, um, you know, so through the Obama administration, you know, this, uh, at least the federal government was totally soaked in this ideology that, you know, the government can't possibly do anything to help other than give people more and more choices. And I think it was very destructive. I mean, we have, uh, uh, there are a lot of good things that could have been done um, and bad things that could have been stopped uh, that weren't. Um, you know, and my hope is that I don't think Biden is buying into this stuff at all. And hopefully we are in a new era, at least in thinking about the role of government, that we're back again to this great tradition that ran through the progressives and the New Deal uh, to the great society. What do you hope that students will take away from your class? What impact do you hope to have on them? Well, I want them to be able to think differently and creatively about uh, policy design. I mean, what the project in class is not the final exam. The pro they have to come up with a project, and the project is to take some existing policy that is based in whole or in part on a notion of, you know, uh, rational actor uh, and uh, turning the policy around the rational actor. And saying, does that really make sense? And to the extent it doesn't make sense, what would be a policy that is more attuned 
uh, a better fit for the way human beings and the human mind is actually constructed. Well, it's already about 15 minutes to 3 p.m. And I know I've taken a lot of your time already. Thank you again for being here today. This has been really educational and, and engaging. It's been totally my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. This has been an episode of Voices and Vulnerability. Expect a new episode every month. If you like what you heard here, you can find us on Twitter at VHC Initiative and on Facebook at Vulnerability and the Human Condition. Thanks for tuning in.